Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show. Leah and the Internet is a show featuring rotating guests who discuss the impact the internet has on the world. So who's Leah Devin Sorrentino? I'm an artist currently living in San Francisco. Episode 7 features guest host Nick Wiley, development director at Southern Exposure. Listen to the two of us talk about the internet's influence over masculinity and sexuality. We also discuss the sometimes misguided nature of trying to understand white privilege and artists' role in technology and capitalism. So, Nick Wiley. Hi. Full disclosure, this is the second time we've recorded together because the first time got lost to the computer gods. Mm -hmm. But for everybody else, can you introduce yourself? I'm Nick Wiley, and we're here in the Bay Area in the Mission, the gallery that I work at, Southern Exposure, and both of us moved here pretty recently. Both from the Midwest. From the Midwest, invading. You have done a lot of awesome projects with artists. Where can people find some of those online? Well, Southern Exposure, this gallery is just Soex, S-O-E-X dot org. And in the Midwest, the project I worked on most recently and for a long time is called Acre, which is a residency program where we met. And we did that's, meet there. And uh, that's org. <laughs> we go to Wisconsin in those summers and there's a gallery in Chicago that shows the work of the residents who came to the... Yeah, it's a pretty incredible residency. I highly suggest people go to it. I had a great time. Got to meet great people like yourself and others. I got to go to a birthday dinner because of someone I met <laughs> from Acre. Oh yeah, just last week. <laughs> it's <was> great. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going to dive into our first topic, which seems a little large, but mm-hmm. it's men and the internet, but mostly about <laughs> masculinity and the internet's effects on it. And mm-hmm. one of the first items of business is people taking pictures of their business. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a trend on the internet called nutscaping that somebody informed me about. And what it is, is where people will take scenic, beautiful photos and then dangle the silhouettes of their hairy nuts <laughs> in the pictures. And I felt like this was a good place to start because it, even though it's like pretty comical and very meme-like, mm-hmm. it embodies a lot of what we know of as masculinity and especially masculinity in America where it's like this idea of conquest mm-hmm. and control and man versus nature and now I, it's associated with pubes. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel about people who dangled? their their (laughs) balls over beautiful scenes of nature it's a strange phenomenon i guess i keep thinking about like how they took the photos and then right just it's so kind of like blatantly ownershipy they're all i thought you said bonershipy bonershipy They're all in really like, yeah, sublime landscapes where they've gotten to go. And so it does feel, I don't know, super concrete. It's almost, I don't know, it's dumb and silly, but I, I've brought it up with a couple people since we first recorded the cup podcast as like the silliest thing we talked about and they all know about it. And so it's Mimi and there's like, it's semi-pornographic but like allowed on i guess twitter and instagram and stuff and so maybe there's that like line of what's pornographic and not and what people are comfortable with it is just right usually like a silhouette that might look like (laughs) a dark eclipse or something (laughs) i originally when somebody sent it to me i thought it was like when people put their fingers over their cameras by Mm -hmm. accident i think that there's what there's a couple things that make this really uncomfortable for me yeah. The first one being, it's like very exhibitionist mm-hmm. and how secluded are these gentlemen when they're right. doing this. There's also something like, I, 
I can't believe the good fortune of many of these men to mm-hmm. like be in some of these scenic areas mm-hmm. and that their instinct is to like mark their territory with their right. with their balls. Yeah. <laughs> I guess right. I go to conquering of nature stuff in general and the history of human relationship to nature being out here in California and at the hub of a lot of like eco love of nature things and thinking a lot about when we go out to the farm in Wisconsin the idea of wilderness turning kind of from this terrifying space right like the desert or wilderness the the space where you don't have the protection of civilization to you know the elements and predators and everything threaten you to this sort of like mother nature bambi (laughs) lovely nature space uh where these men are going and they're exposing the most vulnerable (laughs) part of their anatomy (laughs) like i am so safe in this wilderness that look my balls are out Yeah, I said this story to you prior. Originally, like I said, this was sent to me in like a, oh my God, this is so funny. I can't believe that people are doing this. And you talk about the internet. So of course you want to talk about these people's balls on the internet. (laughs) And I always used to like not understand like the offensiveness of flashing. Mm -hmm. I talked about this before where like a guy exposes themselves to a woman. Mm -hmm. And when I first would hear about it, I didn't understand like why that would be so offensive. Like who cares? It's a wiener. Mm -hmm. And then I think about like, oh, it's this like loss of control. Mm -hmm. Like you are forced to do something that you don't want to do. And it's so weird that people have taken this in such like a comical, like such a domineering kind of action of taking a picture of your nuts on scenes and then essentially forcing people to see it. Right. Is this like very like controlling domineering action Mm -hmm. that i can't see past it being like offensive yeah like it's like like i've talked about it and now with you and like other people so much that to me it solidifies humor oftentimes create generates a lot of really great conversations and makes people really analytical of certain things but then it also can mask the behavior that we have like tolerated from a specific gender me being a woman saying tolerated from a specific gender Mm -hmm. for a really long time and that like nutscaping to me is just an extension of like let me put this in in nature or let me put it on your face like Mm -hmm. either way (laughs) you have to deal with it (laughs) and i mean like it's not every day that people are trying to put balls on my face (laughs) i don't even remember the last time that happened But um, in terms of like humor and like wanting the internet to kind of shatter this idea of how we think of masculinity, I shared with you uh, a BuzzFeed article about a specific funeral that got really popular, and the funeral wasn't uh, (laughs) somebody didn't somebody didn't die. Yeah, but yeah, like that that really hit funeral. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody died except this young gentleman got a girlfriend, and his friends decided to throw him a funeral because essentially his manhood was dead or Mm -hmm. his. I think like before we kind of like saw this and you can see it in like two different ways. I went for the, I guess he's whipped so he no longer can hang out with his friends. So his friends are like, you know, essentially you're dead to us or you're, right. d- you're dying. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody thought that this was so funny. And I was like, wow, it's amazing that if you decide that you love somebody and want to be vulnerable and mm-hmm. you do not put your... If you put hoes before bros, mm-hmm. that you essentially are, like, need a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think I kind of maybe came back a little bit with, yeah, on the face of it being gross and offensive and broy, and, like, it's in a bar and it's British and you kind of feel this sportsy... Sure, like frat. Frat 
yeah. culture thing. But then there is the like further read of a homosocial group of friends being jealous of a relationship that their friend starts to have this romantic with a girl. And so then, then there's sort of like this freedom to express that level of affection in this like comical space that male friendship being compared to or tantamount to replaced by romantic opposite gender relationship or something. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, male bonding and camaraderie is not like a new topic. Sure. Right. And it's it's something that has been like historically celebrated um, mm-hmm. in cultures throughout our time where it's like that that kind of importance. But mm. showing that type of emotion and mm-hmm. like the the need to be connected to like one's friends, I think like men have a harder time with that like women mm-hmm. it's like way more socially acceptable that like you have a girl's night right. i mean like there's like a like a whole thing like girls night and like <laughs> I, I you know up until recently like i didn't really understand how great girls night was <laughs> until starting to have girls nights and they're like oh wow this you know i had mostly male friends until living mm-hmm. in the midwest mm-hmm. so girls night was like not a thing and then i had one and like we made like bracelets and stuff and it was like, <laughs> and it i could totally understand like the camaraderie that but i think that that males like the verse like there's boys night out but it's Mm -hmm. not usually thought of as a space where guys Mm -hmm. are gonna have deep conversations it's like boys night out and like then there's like a strip club and like that type of thing Mm -hmm. and i think that you see a lot more of the bromance that Mm -hmm. kind of exists you shared an article uh about bromances if you could highlight some of that yeah well in fact i guess it could have started with one article but it ended up just being like a tag about bromances because like on queerty which is a queer i guess news aggregator like 25 things about bromances (laughs) and there have been 25 in a year and a half or so and so I think that that's a relatively new concept. Right. When you look at, right, bromance, which is a portmanteau, which are some of my favorite linguistic things, that, and they <laughs> seem to be the main tactic for a lot of the neologisms that are happening around, like, maybe internet or culturally produced new phenomena, especially as relates to, like, masculinity and gender. So, right, bromance being a neologism, it follows that we've since bromance started to talk more scientifically around like homosexuality versus and um, homosexuality as it relates to homoromantic self-definitions or phenomena, right? So the idea that a bromance could be the evidence of homoromantic situation where people write homoromantic is defined as people basically falling in love with people of the same gender versus homosexual where people are attracted to the same gender sure and often we lump those together but they're not necessarily mutual all the time and that gets into something maybe a little more specific than typical like bromance conversation goes but i think it segues us into one of the next things we're going to talk about which is like (laughs) various new sexual orientation definitions yeah but then also maybe it's specifically different than bro jobs which are another like punny little neologism that talk about sexual favors being exchanged between non-homosexual dudes right and to be really clear (laughs) it's it's essentially straight men who do not identify as homosexual performing oral sex on one another as like a bro favor (laughs) (laughs) to put it in layman's terms (laughs) 
I found it really interesting. I did know somebody who engaged in this experience in college and it wasn't for like the really innocuous reasons that the article that you shared with me online was it. I think that it had like a lot more to do with more of the emotional reasons but now even like you talking about this idea of homo romantic homo, or homo romantic, amorous i think or homo yeah. amorous. i really do think that the internet has opened up more avenues for straight males in particular to show genuine affection towards other males mm-hmm. in a way that like females i think already do to me i don't mm-hmm. i don't find it rare to sleep over at a friend's house and sleep in the same bed as a, as a same mm-hmm. sex friend and, and nobody would find that alarming right. and, but i think that historically that would have been frowned upon but i think about like 90s television mm-hmm. and like even the insinuation <laughs> that you uh, even a more flirtatious experience like two men mm-hmm. immediately they had to either make a joke about their mm-hmm. heterosexuality or a woman made a joke at them about how right. non-masculine they were mm-hmm. and that the idea that we have progressed to the point of like consensual heterosexual blowjobs mm-hmm. seems like there must have been <laughs> some type of intervention <laughs> internetvention yeah <laughs> there was a lot of interesting comments mm-hmm. like on the specific article about bro jobs honestly i'm interested in your opinion like do you find that that type of sexual act can be that innocuous or at least not driven at all by romantic feelings i mean like it's so i've been so hardwired that like in some way shape or form sex is supposed to have an emotional component mm-hmm. you know well so from the story that you're telling about it actually happening you know i find this phenomenon as like strange (laughs) and uh and yeah like new as the article and respondents do the one take could just be like bros are hypersexual and they'll do whatever and get it from wherever but the way you're describing it is that it was sort of an emotional connection thing yeah this like yeah, and the, the so whole sort of conceit of the whole thing, like the reason it's strange is that by the nature of the dudes, they're not interested in that kind of sex, right? Yeah. And so there, it seems like that's not the main element of it, maybe. But then it works, and I don't know. It's confusing to me. I mean, I try to place myself in this. And I've, my poor mom to throw her under the bus. Lesbian, I've mentioned it many times. I wonder how many times that she would have appreciated me mentioning it. Uh, But she, 70 years old, has a very distinct opinion about like men and sex Mm -hmm. and like how it drives them to the point of doing things that, and I'm putting it more eloquently than she was. Mm -hmm. She's just like, men are gross. Mm -hmm. End of story. Like, and then particularly even like gay men, she's mm-hmm. like, like, that's like another level of like, she has a hard time believing that like anybody, like any man can be in a committed relationship and, mm. and things along those lines, because like the sex drive is so, and I feel like if I were to tell my mom, like, Hey, straight men are doing bro jobs. She'd be like, I told you. Like, <laughs> you know, like, but then on the, the other side, it's, it's almost like kind of a relief that this could, could mm-hmm. be a thing. And mm-hmm. I said, this might sound complicated, but Women in particular, I feel, are validated based off of their sexual interactions with people. Mm-hmm. Like, if somebody has sex with me, it means that they like me. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily means that they like having sex. It means that they like me. <laughs> and now I'm validated as a person that mm-hmm. could possibly be attractive or mm-hmm. smart or... I don't know how many people are sleeping with people because they're smart. I sleep, sleep with <laughs> yeah, people because they're too. smart. <laughs> but the idea that the act can just be the impetus and that like it's not used for validation. There, mm-hmm. There's almost something that sounds... It, it took hmm. me a long time 
in having sex, and again, sorry, mom, um, <laughs> to get to the point where like I have sex because I enjoy it and mm-hmm. not necessarily I have sex because I enjoy it and also need a slew of other emotional things mm-hmm. checked off and made feel good about. <laughs> I feel like the fact that this community can exist and that people can write about it, there's been a lot of talk about this idea people feeling safe in what they want to do and what and Mm -hmm. how they feel and just this idea Mm -hmm. of creating safe spaces it's not very often that i feel that men need safe spaces Hmm. and i say that for being a woman Mm -hmm. and like it's probably not kind of anti-feminist because it's not really talking about equality i'm Mm. literally saying i feel i don't know maybe not need like i think what you're maybe trying to say is that men don't have difficulty finding safe spaces yeah thank you they already feel safe in many contexts right and so it is maybe an equality issue because everyone should experience as much at least perceived safety as we see that men do yeah i guess but i don't feel that in the context of like a bromance or bro jobs or anything that threatens the traditional aspect of masculinity i Mm -hmm. i don't think that there's many spaces that allow men to challenge that, right. especially men of color, mm-hmm. trying to not be anything except like an upstanding citizen mm-hmm. or like a very like one dimensional good guy right. like, is not allowed, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that the internet has like kind of created uh, a space for men to challenge what the definition of masculinity is and can be. Mm-hmm. Can there be an open discussion for other roles that men are supposed to take? Mm-hmm. Whether that's like back seat, front seat, side sure. seats, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the more that these type of conversations start to happen online, then other things about masculinity, then sexuality get challenged and our one-dimensional view about what sexuality is supposed to be Mm -hmm. also becomes challenged. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned a little bit ago in the conversation about like the, the, just the introduction of new sexual orientations Mm -hmm. and how many sexual orientations there are. Right. Like I thought there was like four. (laughs) There's a lot more than four. Right. Um, (laughs) It's an interesting thing, like naming things, right? Because they could have always existed. Sure. Or, we're naming them and they come into being more or people can find an identity in something like i don't know if you remember there was that this american life like two years ago where people learned what asmr was which like it's like a you hear someone speaking softly and you get like tingles in your scalp it's this phenomenon that all these people that i know had experienced their entire life but they hadn't heard anyone call it anything. It's an acronym ASMR for something. And so now like my husband and his mom and coworkers of mine, like now there's ASMR porn, basically. Uh, There are ASMR artists. Oh, I do remember this episode. Right, yeah. (laughs) So people like listen to this thing that they all had in common. There's some genetic or whatever thing that makes people have this kind of tingly reaction. I can't even understand. People can't convey to us what it feels like. It's a thing and the same things trigger it. And none of them, like, they'd been all kind of closeted their whole lives, (laughs) not knowing what this thing was called or what it was. Sure. And they just felt weird and didn't tell someone. So I maybe relate it to that a little bit. Like, you could also think about, like, Foucault thinking that gay didn't exist until it was named. And there was just this, like, playground of sexuality before we had to, like, pigeonhole things. Sure. Um, And so you can also think about the internet maybe putting people in boxes and then they talk to each other and it's not a broad understanding. But I think in general, like, visibility and being able to see yourself is, like, trumps all of that. And so maybe we can go through the list. Um, (laughs) I feel 
it's worth going through the list. I think it's a pretty good list. I think yeah. that it will start. It starts with some easy ones, right? Like what's hetero hetero flexible? Yeah, I, I'm assuming that it's you identify mostly as hetero, but you can flex to the other side. <laughs> If you find somebody attractive or uh, interesting enough to want to give them a bro job. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> or um, I don't know what a I think a bro job, job is. It doesn't work. <laughs> no, I don't. It, you, then you can't be heteroflexible. But yes, yeah. mostly right. Ding, ding. Um, <laughs> I like this like a game show now. <laughs> so more straight identifying than bi, but still open and attracted to physical and or emotional romances with people of the same gender. So, ah, homosexual so the emotional and or is the bro job. Hom- yeah, exactly. I guess. Hmm. Um, homo flexible is something similar, right? We'll just go with that one being mostly gay identifying, but not entirely. Sure. Would sleep with people of the opposite gender. This is one neither of us, I figure, had ever heard. Scoliosexual. S-K-O-L-I-O. No, I don't know what that is. And that's people attracted to genderqueer folks. Um, okay. People who don't identify as strictly male or female. Got it. Um, so that's specific to that. Pansexual. Pansexual. That Miley Cyrus really made that really popular. <laughs> Did she? I should know more about Miley. Oh, yeah. Miley is now identified as pansexual. Okay. Yes. It, it just means that you can love anybody. It's, it's, right. a, it's a fluidity amongst mm-hmm. the sexualities, mm-hmm. as that I take it. And I think that that one is like coming to prominence in such a way that it can replace bisexuality, which bi, in its root, like reinforces a gender binary, right? Sure. Um, and I think with gender queerness... Uh, uh, we can talk about uh, like a broader scope of sure. uh, gender identities than male or female, and so you talk then about uh, pansexuality. And in fact, I think that like a lot of maybe heteroflexible people that I've talked to are maybe scoliosexual and pansexual relate to that because the way I understand it, the way it's been told to me, is that when someone is either gender queer or presents in a way that say a queer woman who's uh, butch is then more attractive to the heteroflexible woman who mostly likes guys or the queer dude who's femme is more attractive to the straight guy who mostly likes right women the Um, more you break this down the more complicated all of these (laughs) names start to become (laughs) (laughs) well panromantic is easy because we've already talked about like homo romantic homo amorous Sure. Um, and pansexual, so we know the roots and the concepts. <laughs> this is like Latin. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just someone who can be or is romantically attracted to anyone regardless of gender. And I think that that's a sort of distinction that people have been, that's maybe a little newer on like how often it comes up on Dan Savage or how much we're thinking about sure. it in the last couple of years. Another one, which is you know, maybe something we all heard about in high school, but is becoming a more prominent group that advocates and is like, stop misunderstanding us, are the asexuals, right? Yeah. Who have their own flag that's black, gray, white, and purple. Do you remember, and I don't, maybe I just hang around with some some jerky people, mm-hmm. but I remember like <laughs> like in my, my early college career, you'd meet a lot of people who would casually be like, I'm asexual, like I'm just not, right. inter- like, and I was like, I'm not interested in sex. Yeah. And like now knowing more about like truly what being asexual mm-hmm. is, it is incredibly dismissive of like not being able to get laid as like your fallback <laughs> is to say that you are asexual. <laughs> and like, or like people who just decide that they're not going to be focusing on sex mm-hmm. at the moment or choosing to be celibate 
celibate as being asexual. Right, yeah. Uh, asexuals, like, ex- just explicitly don't have sex drive, right? And, and I think that part of the advocacy is that misunderstandings of bi people or even, like, through my early 20s, people were thinking I was identifying as gay because it was hip or something. Like, that can't be real. Like I think that this is what becomes complicated with labels mm-hmm. is that there's a need, I think, for people to feel a part of something. Mm-hmm. And two things about that is, one, there's a need for people who don't understand things to label them and so they can categorize them and then essentially judge them. And right. then there's people who like some type of moniker or identification so they can feel like they belong to something. Mm-hmm. And then there's people who are just forced in the somewhere in between that spectrum. Right, huh. I guess, like, the easiest and best thing to belong to is, like, normative <laughs> sexual and otherwise yeah. society, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, <laughs> I don't know that a lot of people are going out of their way to, like, change their sexuality or identity. I don't think to, it's possible. Right, it's like, not. It's yeah. like a, when... Caitlyn Jenner came out and and she went through her transition and so many people are like she's doing this for a television show and it's right. like holy shit yeah. if she's doing this for a television show exactly. like <laughs> this is, like someone needs to call a doctor yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it's uh, the whole sort of choice thing right like yeah. why would you ever choose to not be normative it makes it more difficult <laughs> like maybe in like utopian future. Uh, sure, you, you can have that type of fluidity or something. Well, not even. Like, no, yeah, I, maybe it would, like, I don't know. Doesn't make sense. <laughs> Wouldn't make sense to, I don't think, decide to be asexual. So what but, are some of the other... Okay, sure. Yeah. So demisexual and gray A are both in following from um, asexual. Demi A don't have sexual attractions for another unless there is an already established emotional connection. So you won't, like, hear them talking about being attracted to strangers, but if they fall in love, then they become uh, sexually attracted. It's the idea that's being presented here. And then I hadn't heard of that one, but Grey A was one that I was more familiar with, which I think is like maybe tantamount to pansexual or something, um, or I don't know, that it's a little less black and white. Um, (laughs) That's the Grey. Every now and then their libido perks up is uh, what it says here. Well, there's just one more that's not a joke. All these lists have to end with jokes. It's an internet <laughs> thing. Even when talking about people's sensitive, right, self-identifications. But androgen-sexual <laughs> is attracted to all genders, but only if it reads as androgynous. And I have a little confusion there between... So androgynous-sexual, I think, might relate to scoliosexual. Sure. Um, but that's genderqueer versus androgynous people. And the other one is genderqueer, who aren't necessarily androgynous. That was biased of me to get confused but it is a big and growing list and it kind of reminds me of facebook like acquiescing to the 50 gender identities sort of thing too in terms of sexual fluidity and Mm -hmm. like gender equality it's Mm. scary in terms of like how far we still are from that but the fact that there is even a platform for the conversation to have a have a place yeah it's pretty impressive and it it kind of i think is the reason why there is a new barbie commercial (laughs) (laughs) best transition ever Uh um that has a very adorable young man in it can we play it is that something no we should we should totally we should totally play it (laughs) okay here we go
Barbie doll. Fabulosity totally <laughs> included. The wink at the end like kills me. It kills me. He's like trained to wink. He clearly like doesn't really know what a wink is. Yeah. It's like, like you close one eye and then that means yeah. something. Little boy, close one eye real quick. <laughs> you know, seeing it now for the third or fourth time, mm-hmm. at first I saw it on the It Gets Better news feed on Facebook. Okay. Uh-huh. And then I saw it on BuzzFeed. Look at how the world's changing. Now seeing it again, I think it's awesome that... Mm-hmm we are de-genderizing toys, uh-huh. right? Like that's that's like a, a intro- target thing. Yeah, the yeah. target thing happened, like a Barbie that like a boy plays with. All of that's really interesting. It is a little sad to me after seeing it again that it's like this very progressive thing in a very traditional box mm-hmm. of like commercialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't know what Moschino was and we had to look it up and things cost too much. Yeah, uh, like it's a pair of non-supportive bra and underwear was $350. Moschino Barbie is $150. Yeah, a sweater was $1,800. And so I kind of think that this was maybe a way for Barbie to do the inclusive thing, but target it to adults, right? Like well, Moschino and target is to, like privileged adults. Absolutely right. Yeah, privileged adults like they designed for. It says Madonna, Kate, per- Katy Perry, and Nicki Minaj, and so it's like super brandy, high fashion, and then they have the kid who's like five tops. Yeah, he's upon, young. Yeah, looking at it again, he can't really pronounce things, and he's like being taught how to wink, and he's being told to say that Moschino Barbie is really fierce. Like, all these things... It's tough. Like, when the headline that I saw was, Little Boy and Barbie commercial says fierce, and it right. is everything. Right. And, like, it is everything if you mm-hmm. can be a part of this conversation. And the conversation is a little complicated to me because the last time we talked, it was right after Halloween, and we talked about a little boy who dressed up in... A Corella Deville outfit, which clearly sure. he didn't do all himself. No, it was like, like really he, good. It was amazingly done. And and then the internet exploding about how this dad defended him against haters and other recent conversations about like parents of trans children and the difficulties that they go through, but then like see changes in how like early and accepted trans identity is, with then like that maybe being conflated here, like that kid, you know, isn't sexual yet, right? Like, yeah. the, like, queerness isn't there, and he's saying fierce, and it's, like, not... And he's a he, and there's, like, transness, and he's... It's well, confusing. I mean, like, like, it's, uh... I actually feel like the little boy in this commercial is sexualized in a way that, like, the little girls in it, to me, I, I don't get the same quality mm-hmm. towards, and I don't know if it's... Because I'm not used to seeing a boy in this context, mm-hmm. and there's something that does, it, like, it does seem queer. The fact that he says fierce, and, like, the right. pompadour that he's wearing, yeah. and, like, super fashionable. Uh-huh. I think that there is, like, a, a specific idea that we associate with all of those different things. It just seems like a very peculiar platform to oh. introduce. <laughs> Wait. I'm just reading the end of this article. The two collector's edition dolls sold out within an hour. Oh, on there's only two there dolls. Two of them. This oh. isn't playing on Saturday morning cartoons. So this, yeah. 
this is a conversation for people who are already having the conversation and this is an exploitative way <laughs> to get people to spend money and i think that this is a great transition <laughs> into the idea of privilege uh -huh. and it was another thing that like we wanted to tackle in this conversation and i think that there are so many ways that people engage in privileged activity mm -hmm. and in ways that seem like they're being not close-minded and they feel more progressive than they really are and i think mosquito barbie is kind of a <laughs> highlight of that behavior where mm -hmm. like everybody is celebrating the fact that this little boy mm -hmm. is in this commercial and they are not addressing the fact that the reason that anybody could participate in this you have to have money the people who can have this conversation are the ones that like yes it can go viral With and it can be internet, on the internet yeah. but like who can relate to mm -hmm. who, to Moschino Barbie? We need to look up Moschino. Um, <laughs> we certainly should name privileges, but like, what is that? And and it seems like a pretty, maybe a little bit crass use of something that's going to go viral to advertise not so much Barbie, but the Moschino brand, which is then we saw rebranding itself with a bunch of Barbie aesthetics. Their clothes have Barbie-like font that says Moschino all over it. There are you cell phone holders. An, yeah, an iPhone holder that like looks like the Barbie hairbrush and mirror. And so that's all kind of like whatever absurd high fashion stuff. It's also like a little crass in that if that commercial, right, the way it's framed and its production value is like almost there where it could be like something that was aired yeah, 10 like years a ago, a Mattel yeah. commercial on TV. And, and that would have some sort of impact maybe, right? Like, sure. um that being broadcast to a bunch of people. This is targeted marketing. And it's never going to air on regular of course television. Not. No, no, no. Yeah, cuz yeah. it's not for so it's for $2. <laughs> it's yeah. for two like see like not two different types of dolls that you can buy, two singular dolls. I think that's true, yeah. <laughs> Even even if like a oh, regular no, there are two dolls. Okay. A regular okay. Barbie is is ten dollars mm -hmm. and the Moschino Barbie probably sans accessories is a hundred and fifty. Before it sold out. Before it sold out. No. Yeah. And I think that these are <laughs> these are the ways that a lot of people and especially like intellectuals trick themselves and like there were so many people that I find so important that were having the conversation about this boy being in this commercial with mm -hmm. like negating the fact that how the commercial was released to the public and what its ultimate objective was. Mm -hmm. And I think that this might seem like a large leap, but there's a lot of racial unrest mm -hmm. in colleges right now, specifically University of Missouri and the Mizzou. Mm -hmm. And a lot of white people are having conversations where they don't understand that there's racism on college right. campuses. And I think that it's, <laughs> it sounds crazy, but it's things like Moschino Barbie, where it's easy as a as a white person mm. to say like, well, it, black people are in college. Like once they get to that level, it mm. means that they're thriving. It means mm -hmm. that things are safe. Like they're in an educational institution. Like they're on equal. Like I'm doing air quotes. You can't see it, universe. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> a, an equal playing field. And I think it. The, the protests that started happening there to get the president to resign because of all of the racial tension that was happening and that they were ignoring yeah. because it, it's so easy to, I'm going to whitewash, for mm -hmm. lack of a pun, that situation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of incidents that happened that led up to now essentially like an incredibly unsafe space at this university, but mm -hmm. also acknowledging that there's a lot of unsafe spaces 
for black people, no matter what class. A lot of times when people want to talk about institutionalized racism, they want to break it down to just class itself. And I think what this has shown, uh, this being the protests in the Mizzou, that racism is actually the, the problem. It's not class. If you want to highlight some specific events. Basically, a series of complaints were like formally filed with the university after like anti-transgender, anti-homosexual, racist uh, things that were just sort of silenced. And and I don't know, like, like makes me think a lot about Dear White People, the film where the sort of climactic scene is like a, a blackface party. These type of things happen on campuses a lot. Yeah. And it's just like broadcasting ignorance. It's crazy. To... <laughs> and I was in one of these spaces kind of like last year. I don't know if we talked about this yet, but it was maybe like the third day that this like 19 year old woman who was coming to stay with my husband and me got to the city from um, Ohio. She came to Chicago and we were in the Pilsen neighborhood, which is like a gentrifying, but traditionally for maybe the past 50, 60 years, Latino, and then before that, right, other cultures. But so we were there in this like gentrifying zone uh, where some artists, designers had like thrown a party that was like Mexican themed in the <laughs> predominantly Mexican neighborhood. And there were no brown people there. And it was just my husband and me and Elle, who's black. And we show up there and like, it doesn't seem like anyone is noticing that they're wearing sure. like plastic sombreros and like ponchos and stuff is weird or an issue. And we kind of just like walked to the second floor of their like cool screen print lab for designers and watched it all and just couldn't fathom it and had to sure. leave. And it was only like after a couple months that we kind of confronted the people about it a little bit. Apparently no one had talked to them about this being crazy and offensive. I think that this happens a lot of times with intellectuals where th- people who have good intentions and who mm-hmm. often think that they're fighting on the side of good or living on the side of what they consider good can have trouble checking their own privilege, mm-hmm. have, lose sight of who they are within the systems that help mm-hmm. perpetuate privilege. Mm-hmm. And then I think that it it also becomes an area where I at least feel that I have these conversations so often mm-hmm. that they start to become, I don't know, ubiquitous mm-hmm. or not as impactful. And then you it's like you, you start to forget all the things that you talk about. And mm-hmm. we looked at a video um, that was created by Amy Poehler, has like a website and somebody for there created a, uh, a video where it was like teaching people about privilege and part of it felt so rudimentary and so literal when you were watching it. And it was really hard to empathize with the characters that were trying, like the, the black woman that was trying to show the white male, like yeah. how he was privileged that like, I didn't feel like empathy for the character, but then I started thinking about, I think that it's like a too literal conversation because it's a conversation that like, I forget that most people really don't know. Right. Like, and it's like this line of, are you educating or are you pandering? Are mm-hmm. you having a conversation or are you talking down to? Mm-hmm. I don't like... Yeah. I think it becomes hard to navigate to where somebody who should know better in terms mm-hmm. of like the story that you're telling and it becomes like almost unfathomable yeah. that they wouldn't. Right. And then you see this stuff that's happening on college campuses and yeah. see this stuff that's happening amongst people who like quote unquote should know better and yeah. they don't. Well, so right, that's, I think we were talking about like safe spaces earlier and, and the trend with language is to talk 
or the movement is to call them safer spaces because of maybe just this sort of situation where it's maybe one place for us to be shocked by people who don't recognize their privilege or their bigotry and then it's another for well i don't know well when we are affected as you know a gay man and a woman in those situations it's one thing and then i don't know it's like even scarier for someone say maybe in like the position of a trans person experiencing transphobia equivalencies and value judgments but the reason I'm bringing that up is that uh, I really like this metaphor, um, <laughs> which Wolfie Rock, who's an awesome artist, uh, makes. They make horror movies, right? And they're about living in an institutionally transphobic space world. Makes for, right, really good, terrible images of the hordes of transphobic assholes as like a zombie horde, but then also in spaces where you're presuming there's safety like brushing your teeth, the transphobic comment or misgendering can jump out from behind the bath curtain. Um, <laughs> like. No, I totally understand what you're saying. And there was actually a lot of conversation in terms of colleges where a lot of the black student unions and, and people of color are demanding these safer spaces and mm-hmm. that exclude white people. Right, that's And a, a lot of white people are offended, mm-hmm. like we do. <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. I will say that like when listen, like I do listen to a lot of different podcasts and talk to a lot of people and sometimes when people directly say like, this is white people's fault, like mm-hmm. there's a part of me by being white where I'm like, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, and then I'm like, ah, right. uh, but yeah, like, yeah, like it is. So that, you know, they're talking about these safer spaces, and mm-hmm. all these white students are getting like offended of like, mm-hmm. but I'm your ally. I'm your, right. you know, I I agree with you, and I want to mm-hmm. support you. And it's like, yes, but like you have the freedom yeah. of being white to go to any space mm-hmm. and essentially feel safe in it, and that right. I deserve a space that like I don't have to worry about you being conscious of your privilege right because even the best exactly the best of privileged people and like i think that the the word privilege it gets people riled up because privilege gets so synonymous with wealth yeah like your privilege means you have money mm-hmm. and that's not it it's, privilege means that you are you are given the benefit of the doubt you mm-hmm. are given a place to succeed you are expected to succeed you are it's not equated to wealth it's just wealth can normally come when you have privilege mm-hmm. because you have a space Wealth is the product of privilege often. Yeah. yeah and it generates it for some but I, I really want to kind of dive into that conversation about not separatism but having conversations where you don't have to necessarily educate or feel surprised by sure. somebody's ignorance right where a group of people of a certain kind of way difference can actually generate more safety in that not just someone isn't going to be directly aggressive with them or about their difference, but the like tacit aggression of ignorance can just be like exhausting. And sure. more and more people are recognizing that it's not their job to tell everybody about their experience. That can be exhausting. And I'm just also like really hung up on this Andrea Fraser performance that I saw a couple few weeks ago now, where she reproduces actually a radio interview like the one we're doing, but from the 70s when it was actually radio and it was on Pacifica and it was men reacting to feminism and how it affected their masculinity. And one of the things that they got hung up on the most was the exclusion that they felt from feminist conversations and groups that like they weren't allowed in and they kind of understood why, but didn't they understand that they were allies? Sure. And the whole 
performance where Andrea Fraser was being like performing as these four different like super educated, well-intentioned lefty dudes was mostly entertaining because it was so absurd because their thinking was so like backwards and felt super anti-feminist and like was entertaining because it was so absurd. Thinking about those people in those rooms that they wanted to be in and how disruptive and obnoxious that would be. It's like, clearly that's why you're not in the room. Like chill out, (laughs) step back. (laughs) It's crazy to think that people within these institutions can't understand the simplicity of the demand to need an existence where you don't have to defend your existence. Yeah. Even to people who want to help you. Yeah. Like... Maybe, I don't want to badmouth Acre, but Acre has always felt to us, and increasingly so, as like we're having more conversations around equity and it feels like there's more equity there just is on the farm. Even there, this summer, there were groups that wanted to have conversations just among POC residents and staff and just among queer residents and staff. And there were people like super well-intentioned that just like had never confronted that sort of exclusionary space. And like even saying exclusionary feels really like negatively loaded. Yeah, it feels harsher harsher than it is. How often am I excluded from something because Mm -hmm. I'm white? Right. I mean, it's yeah. like kind of never. Yeah. And it's, it's not, experience. yeah, it's not something that like you are confronted with. Mm-hmm. And it does seem confrontational in a negative way, but maybe sometimes like white people aren't the people that are supposed to help in that yeah. way. Exactly. There are ways to help, but being like super vocal and spokesperson-y feels patronizing and shitty, right? Like yeah. the most impressive BLM action that happened in the Bay Area last year was when they shut down the Oakland PD for the, I think it was the amount of time that Mike Brown lay on the ground, something significant and intense and insane. And, and so BLM protesters existed at the intersection of two streets in front of the police department And then around them were chained allies of like old women and Asians and whites and chained to each other with bike locks. And then also allies were chained to the doors of the PD with bike locks around their necks. And so like being silent but bodily present in such a way that like super acknowledges the privilege of the non-black protesters and the presumption that their bodies are safer in the face of police violence than the BLM protesters that they're protecting like that feels like a really poetic reinforcing the acknowledgement of privilege way to like actually help by shutting up and by shutting up (laughs) and this happens like with both of us are artists and like this happens within our own community often in New York especially the stories are more dramatic and extreme but like I'm moving into this crazy neighborhood where there are no white people and I'm going to be offensive and say it feels unsafe, but I can't afford anything else. Like, I can't afford to live around white people. I'm just like, I have to do this because I'm a cultural producer or whatever. And then, like, what do you have to do? It's like to live in your own apartment that used to be three people's apartment that you're taking over and taking up space in. That you need to do because you only earn that much money. But... 
yeah, what you're saying is like the people who are selling their story as they have to mm-hmm. do something and they have to essentially live below normal means, which mm-hmm. is an insulting way to think about it. Yeah. And then in turn, making a neighborhood that was once deemed unsafe more safe because mm-hmm. there's white faces. Yeah. And like, that's essentially, and this is what becomes so complicated for me when artists talk about the idea of gentrification or displacement or anything along those lines, especially white artist. Mm-hmm. I think I should now preface when I say this as white artist, mm-hmm. because in terms of like the the quote unquote sacrifices that that white artist had mm-hmm. to make to be in the neighborhood that they don't visually look like they align to because at that point in time, that's their financial income to live the life that they want to live Mm -hmm. and to be able to quote unquote produce the work that they want to make. This is all choices like, like sacrifice, like sacrifice by choice, not sacrifice by, by existence. Like Mm -hmm. by like, uh, because a lot of people in that neighborhood that is so undesirable is, is not a choice to be there. And it's not, I think about this like when moving to San Francisco. Yeah. It's been like really complicated because mm-hmm. I feel that um, I am a artist. I feel that I impact uh, a culture of an environment. I don't believe that people can't be in transit. I do think that it's important that people can be fluid and I like mm-hmm. change and I like all those things. However, I am somebody who can afford to live in a neighborhood that most people cannot because I have a job that allows me to do that and I have mm-hmm. the choice of that fluidity. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I, it's not lost on me that I'm around people who are now displaced because they could no longer afford the home that I'm in. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because I've worked very hard to get to the point of being able to afford that home. But I also don't talk very openly about how I think it's crazy that I'm paying crazy high rent. Because yeah. I don't think it's an appropriate conversation for me to have mm-hmm. that because now what I'm paying for rent in San Francisco, I could move somewhere else mm-hmm. and live a lot, quote unquote, better mm-hmm. in a lot quote unquote, nicer neighborhood, mm-hmm. but I'm making a conscious choice that I, because of my privilege, I'm, a, I'm allowed mm-hmm. to make. I think that especially in San Francisco, it's, it's kind of like the conversation we were talking about before where there's a lot of people with a lot of really great intentions that want to be a part of the conversation about displacement mm-hmm. because of uh, inequality of wealth. Mm-hmm. And they want to be able to impact um, these people in these areas. And I Sometimes I don't know how appropriate it is that art is a part of the conversation because mm-hmm. in many ways artists are the the front runners of gentrification and they're mm-hmm. the first line of like the the army that goes into areas and it's so interesting to me that like when I first moved here so many people were like oh I'm surprised you don't live in Oakland because Oakland's mm-hmm. where all the artists live because right. it's cheaper and I'm right. like well <laughs> isn't that isn't now what happened to San Francisco going to happen to Oakland because you've made it hip and you've made it cool and like not really necessarily understanding your role in, in all of this. And what, what brings me to mind is there, there was this uh, article that I shared with you that was like the artist as quote in the New York times, quote unquote slave because of the internet. Mm -hmm. And I took such offense to this idea that the artist, the artist is slave because they're not getting paid for their content. Mm -hmm. And it seems like kind of like a, a very disjointed connection that I'm making here, but artists are very tethered to this capitalistic system that helps perpetuate all of these things that they're upset about in terms of gentrification and displacement and racism. And, and, and I think that 
artists have a hard time acknowledging their role and not necessarily their responsibility. I think that people understand that that artists as intellectuals have a responsibility to interact with these systems and try to affect Mm -hmm, them. mm -hmm. But I think that there becomes a, uh, a disconnect with like, how do you help perpetuate the system that you are in? Sure. Well, like broad strokes, I think that artists, right, there's like the old propaganda poster that says like beware of artists because they can like move among classes, right? That uh, that was a like literal danger to the state in the early 20th century. And so there's like culturally that that sort of engagement with different spaces of class, but then also like the profession the actual like labor and relationship to compensation and wealth that the profession itself has is strikingly broad in the classes that it sort of engages with, right? Because artists as gentrifying forces often exist that way because they're risk oblivious, right? As like real estate speculators and uh, like theorists have a category for people like artists and it's risk oblivious. They don't understand like the danger of a neighborhood they're moving sure. into or right um, a number of factors that keep other people from migrating as rapidly so they as a whole supposedly the artist type of person moves more rapidly into a space that's more affordable and then is often right like as you're noting um, the group that gets displaced pretty quickly or as quickly as other members of like their class profile. And these aren't like artists who are blue chip and selling a bunch of their work and living on their work. These are like aspirant. Yeah, emerging, you right. know, like uh, not not your Jeff Koons. It's not your it's not your art stars. But then right, that there are then art stars where like the aspirant is seeing themselves sort of like what's the matter with Kansas sort of like group of people that thinks maybe a certain kind of artist thinks that then there is this possible not necessarily even art stardom but ability to make a living off of their work because they see people doing it like etsy crafters see people making livings off of their craft it's like an absurd fake illusion dream thing (laughs) and and so right like absolutely the artist class there is super precarious and and so there is a choice at a certain point it's maybe like a diluted choice misrepresented too in terms of like what their feasible future as producers of objects or culture can be and so like day to day it's not so much always a choice because the education and training and career trajectory that they've succumbed to or chosen is not lucrative and so it's not as if like an artist can just like a straight people person can't like <laughs> oh decide I'm gonna step to the side now and like leave the vector of my sexuality or career um, and become privileged in the space that like the initial choice I made to be an artist provided me sure right, or... I mean I will say though that like I think that some of it is a little bit of misguidance in terms of like how the, the Etsy thing that you're talking about and things like that but I also think like in terms of like this like artist as internet slave which was this this article I think that there is a not everywhere but a lot of artists refute the idea and the emergence of technology mm-hmm. and I really feel that the in part it's because of that aspiration of art stardom and yeah. Uh, I think that the hmm. internet causes a, a severe disruption and technology causes a severe disruption in how art is made, how art can be valued and how who can see it, 
who makes it accessible, it kind of changes a lot of the conversation. Yeah. It creates, quote unquote, more competition. Mm -hmm. It does a lot of things that are very intrusive to the system of art that we know it. Disruptive even. Yeah, and it, if the current art system, art capitalist system is to go down, then it's, it's like what you're saying. Why does Kansas vote Republican? Or why do middle class people always need a lower class? Mm -hmm. Why do artists need to have this system in place? It's like because of that idea of being this well-known recognized artist. It's not always right. necessarily about the dollar, but it is mm -hmm. about like the, that individualistic pursuit of being yeah. known as a genius and, and, mm -hmm. and the notoriety. And if you take that system away, that system that helps that capitalistic system that helps perpetuate so much of the negativity that I think most artists like mm -hmm. truly identify as being against mm -hmm. keeping that art system like kind of prevalent mm -hmm. <laughs> and not embracing like there's a lot of things that are happening in like the technology space that are counterintuitive to us progressing into a society that nurtures there is a lot of hmm. businesses dictating technology mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not artists dictating technology yeah. but I think that the reason that artists are sometimes reluctant to participate or engage or accept is the idea that like it's an unknown that can change it's like the mm -hmm. same reason that a lot of people don't want to introduce like new political systems or mm -hmm. uh, provide universal health care. All right. these things that they think might threaten what they understand as yeah. their day-to-day life, day -day life. And and certainly like I think it's really relevant to have this conversation around like artists writ large because it's really culture that, that allows or disallows certain technologies from affecting like the perhaps if we cannot be allowed to call it progress progress that affects like civilization more than elections or or day-to-day -day democratic unrest right so or shifts i am just continually fascinated with these two stories right one at the beginning of the industrial revolution and one that happened like last year and i'll be really brief about it but um <laughs> basically industrial revolution precipitated by yes a lot of technologies that came together and uh, allowed for steam engines and cotton gins and all sorts of new production that assembly lines could then be generated and factories and right we all kind of have that narrative it's like oh all these texts like were synchronous and came together sure. and it was wonderful most of those like all of those texts had existed for hundreds of years like kind of spread across the world but with cultures that were talking to each other and trading and were observing each other's tech it was the willingness of within a generation, someone to incorporate a new technology into their way of life that really accelerated the um, Industrial Revolution is the argument, right? And that culture got to this space where they weren't terrified of their lives changing within their lifetime because there was a steam engine train, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. that it was going to affect the way that all of them perceived time for, like yeah. within their life. Right? That was like maybe okay to deal with culturally. Um, and so then the thing that happened last year was, and maybe it was even this year, was that Google Glass was discontinued, right? Yeah, this, um, uh, beginning of this year. Beginning of this year, yeah. And that felt like maybe a minor event, but to me it felt like that was the end of the chapter that started with the Industrial Revolution. It's like, no more culture is going to stop us from getting to that place that Nick dreamed about when he was eight, about being able to take pictures by blinking, and it's not allowed, <laughs> and it's just too no, scary. I, I think that that's a, that's a really great... Yeah, and I've never actually looked at it that way, but in terms of, like, there was a willingness to see where progress would take us, yeah. see where it would... Even if it was to somewhere that might be darker than where we are today. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
people are so um, worried about risking what we already have. I I um, have thought about this a lot mm-hmm. in terms of what makes people afraid of the future. Right. Yeah. You know, and there's a resurgence, and I was seeing it a lot in artwork where um, people are really obsessed with the the past and nostalgia mm-hmm. and this idea of of once what was once and mm-hmm. and um, and I came to the conclusion it's because like the the present everybody feels the anxiety of the present mm-hmm. and there is a lot of um, complicated things that we all interact with day to day that seem even when things are going well there's something that pulls especially if you're somebody who thinks about about how the world works or something that pulls at you mm-hmm. but you can remember things of how they felt good and right. the future is what if it's worse than what you even have now yeah and like i i think that that's such a scary existence Mm -hmm. for like humanity Mm -hmm. because it's this idea and it's been kind of complicated since i moved here because Mm -hmm. so many people talk about the romanticized version of the way things used to be in san francisco and i i love the city so far i'm Mm -hmm. i'm enamored with the the neighborhoods and the people and the ocean and it's to me fantastic and the idea that like I'm being cheated out of once mm-hmm. what once was here. Mm-hmm. To me, feels a lot like when when I was at Superscript and people were mm-hmm. very resident of the the future and the internet. And mm-hmm. when I listen to artists talk about like the the trivial nature of social media mm-hmm. or like the lack of presence or the mm-hmm. the fact that our tools are our phones and in, in this dismissive way of like, mm-hmm. it makes me so reticent and fretful about what can possibly happen as we move forward if yep. we're so much pining for what used to exist right. and what used to exist was homophobic and yep. and scary and racist mm-hmm. and sexist and even more than we can imagine right now yeah <laughs> right and so yeah totally like within i feel like the last 10 years going to conferences seeing work like seeing tons of applications from artists all the time it's super nostalgia for 60s 70s radicalism like not necessarily for the way things were but for the way that counterculture was the way that sure. like change happened the way that that like is represented to us is maybe the better way to say it because it's really not nostalgia it's saudade which is this right portuguese word for nostalgia for something that you'd actually didn't experience yeah. right so like that can either be historical i'm nostalgic for 68 in chicago i would love to be like beaten by the cops in grant park or whatever because it felt real and like yeah and the way that it feels to have felt real is like a mediated experience right like we're understanding as is right like the utopian future right like there is this nostalgia for something that we've yet to experience but like can feel and it is like super effective at like affect theory ish but when you get neggy on either side it gets to be well when you get neggy about the future it feels kind of gross and not progressive and and that's exactly why or that's exactly the stance that people who are talking about accelerationism segue are now uh <laughs> like sort of taking and talking about and that's the way that i can often understand it best is that like you can identify what they're being like dialectically opposed to which is like the left and culture wanting to um like maybe back to the landed a little bit like super go local um think global act local um, (laughs) 
like slow, slow movement, right? Like yeah. that's what's the most like thoughtful and lefty. Like this future is going too fast, and we have to like think about the artisanal food and scarves that we're making, and like sure. that's the way to like really be human and like and avoid compost. this and compost. And, I'm so anti-compost. And like, worship the wilderness and be terrified of like the machines coming to eat us all. Yeah. It seems like an impulse that comes from fear, one that like sure recognizes environmental, teleological breakdown, terrible situation, but doesn't feel useful when capitalism is driving forward at breakneck pace sure. with technology. And to divest from that conversation means that we won't get Google Glass and we won't have like <laughs> cool conversations online, I think. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I think that kind of pushing away from that technology is is another point of privilege. Yeah. You get to choose to not be, you get to choose to buy local. You get to choose mm-hmm. to um, think organically and, and do all these things that you get to have like a conscious participation in where you're right, the rest of the world is moving at a incredible speed. There are a lot of businesses and companies and corporations who are trying to capitalize on this technology and how they capitalize it is on creating human efficiencies and, and engagement with it mm-hmm. and then profiting off of it. And mm-hmm. without the inter- intervention of these people who are creating their efforts into these other kind of counterintuitive ways, like the world doesn't stop. The world <laughs> continuously moves forward and yeah. it's going to move forward. And like it starts to become like what part of history will artists fall on? Mm-hmm. And it's not the, the first time in like art history where artists are not really landing on the right side of the page Hmm. in terms of like i think about like modernism in a Mm -hmm. way that kind of backfired Mm -hmm. in the art world's face in terms of like it was this idea of challenging capitalism and like Mm -hmm. creating uh aesthetic and form-based you know Hmm. like objects to almost devalue them as like Mm -hmm. decorative Mm -hmm. and then what it created (laughs) was this exclusivity and then this hyper patron relationships and uh just patriotic and funded by the cia yeah (laughs) and like super money it became like crazy money and then like Mm -hmm. the nutso art star stuff that we Mm -hmm. see and now idolize and like the postmodernism stuff that like I more identify with, but understand where your Andy Warhols and your Basquiat's and your and your all these things that you know one part of the educated world thinks of them as high art and right. understands their value and but mm-hmm. it's just another part of an investment. It yeah ultimately. I would like to just jump in there with yeah. the we we're gonna maybe talk for a second about just this pretty simple good for your students eflux article that Boris Groys submitted maybe a few years ago called the weak universalism which talks kind of about just that that um that maybe a democratization of the ability to make art right like the sort of generation of modern and postmodern my kid could do that paintings that uh maybe rely on a conceptual conceit or are formal but not expressing a mastery that a trained hand and like training is doing like the intention of that supposedly and the theorizing of it is that right we're going to like level the privilege of art like everyone can go and make colorful paintings um everyone can make you know improvised objects that are unmonumental but the reaction then that Groys points out is like the pretty obvious one the my kid could do that feeling of alienation that the general art audience is perceived as having that I feel offended that that was generated. I know what I like. I like to see representational mastery. That's like what is actually accessible to me. So 
it's sort of like this inversion of what is assumed to be the high art that's inaccessible, the representational, the mastery claim, and that, that that's just this paradox and, and is siloing and ivory towering a community who is educated in the conversation of the history of contemporary art where like, oh, that's where I know we're at right now. And so this seems good to me. This is exciting, yeah. et cetera, right? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I think that like the this kind of goes back to the artist being well-intentioned mm-hmm. and not necessarily understanding, always understanding their place and their role within a system. And I think that it's, you know, the conversation where um, not acknowledging sometimes that there's art created for intellectuals and that, the, that there is a space for that. But then that there's oftentimes that art does alienate the people that it's supposed to be serving and it does detract from the culture that it's supposed to be participating in in a way that makes it inaccessible for somebody to come up and approach it and start to have a conversation and create a discourse and I oftentimes like I, I kind of feel split on it it's like I I enjoy work that is intellectually challenging and doesn't pander and mm-hmm. uh, insists that the audience tries to mm-hmm. come up to the level of art and I think that mm-hmm. that's important to create. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think it becomes about well, what is the art trying to do? Right. And I think that the reason that mass communities pine for the recognizable or the accessible is because there's so much work that gets tied to its value based on money and mm-hmm. I think that the mastery that people recognize, they usually understand has some type of uh, monetary extrinsic value. Right, yeah. And then also, because a lot of times art gets applied to very clear social issues that it doesn't necessarily create an immediate impact on, that when there's something that's completely inaccessible and then you can't understand its extrinsic value, Mm -hmm. then it starts to feel obsolete Mm -hmm. and a waste of time. Because like now, as somebody who is not... Um, if I was somebody who's part of the audience who does not understand the conversation, I don't understand the social impact. I don't understand the value. I don't understand why this takes mastery. So you have alienated me in a way that I don't understand why I should participate. And I think that that becomes again, like this to bring it back to like artists and technology. Mm -hmm. I think that what embracing technology would do for artists is create an accessibility to audiences and to ideas that have never existed within the art world before at a a volume and that idea of siloing things you can create work that goes towards multiple audiences at one time and it's not about space and it's not about accessibility and it you can get niche or Mm -hmm. wide and because if you take the value out which is Mm -hmm. money yeah and if you take the mm -hmm. I, i mean like and in the future, if you we if we push forward and everybody mm-hmm. had the same accessibility to technology, but again that. Um, yeah, but I'm also talking about like things like the jogging, which are experimenting with these levels of audience and accidental audience and like internet mastery and non and playful. There, you know, um, like then they're also experimenting with um, compensation, right, for the number of reblogs you get or whatever. Um, and so I think that it's not outside of the realm of possibility to see. Um, some of the stuff being monetized, and that's a weird, like, little correction to make. But um, sure. But I, to some of the things you said before, I forget. I just want to, for some reason, they're making me want to mention two pieces. One of them is one that was just selected for our jury show, which is going to go up on um, this Monday, which is much before the uh, podcast is taking place, but it'll still be up. Um, <laughs> is uh, like a piece that exhibits not a lot of formal training, or um, sort of is and isn't conversant with contemporary art conversations but like 
um, and you know, it's assumed that it's like a high school student or something who submitted this work. It's maybe like three feet by three feet square painting, and it's just like two cops, white cops hitting black dude on the ground in like this really straightforward and specific way and like none of the other pieces in the show i don't know what they're about really like sure they, they have titles and they are like it's a juried show and it's free to enter so it's like the, a huge gamut like across various sort of like points at which people were trained or not in the contemporary art history of the last 50 years um but like all of it obfuscated like direct statement um, if there was any, except for this one thing. And it's just like, there's an example of the piece that I keep thinking about because it said something like almost political cartoony or like super direct. Sure. And like, what is that doing in an art gallery? What does it do? And then there's this um, other one on the other end where there's tons of mastery. And I just want to be real quick. It's the new um, Laurie Anderson piece, which was um, presented at the um, Armory in New York maybe a month ago. And it's just like this giant like statue of a kneeling man, I think, and projected on it, you know, maybe the size of the Lincoln Memorial and projected on it is like 20 something year old man who had been detained at Guantanamo for like the last 10 years or so, having been like abducted from like a field and brought to Guantanamo as a 12 year old, having done nothing and terrible horror. And, and it's just really direct. Like New Yorkers come in, they see, this guy, he's just sitting there. It's a live broadcast, so he can see them and they can see him, but he's, sure. you know, can't be on American soil and is across the ocean. And Laurie Anderson is playing some sort of music to the side, but that's not what is important and engaging. It's like that the people, knowing that he can see but not hear them, are like gauging as like the first Americans who aren't torturing and imprisoning him that he's engaging with on this scale, I guess. I don't know. Like miming apologies to him. And it's just like... I can't think of a more, like, just direct gesture, right? Like, sure. And there is, like, all this tech mastery, and Laurie Anderson has, like, become friends with Dude and, like, set this whole thing up that has a whole trajectory of working with different imprisoned people for the last 10 years. But then what you get is just this, like, straight-up human interaction that is poetic and super, to my mind, accessible. I just described what it was, and everyone can probably understand what that experience yeah. was, you know? And I think that that's an actually great example of how all of these tools mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of this technology mm-hmm. actually can do what all artists know their traditional mediums can do. Yeah. I think that that's actually almost a really good place to end on as well because it's this idea that we've talked about all these like really large topics mm-hmm. and all these like, and it's kind of nice to know that they're, what you're highlighting is that there's people who are engaging in how we understand art currently and where it can go mm-hmm. based off of how we're introducing technology. I mean, like the experience that all of those people had is mm-hmm. incredibly personal yeah. on like a very universal topic, mm-hmm. uh, which is suffering. Yeah. Um, and it's all mediated by a technology that that would not have been able to create that experience whether if it existed or not it's yeah. just as um it's as equally as literal as the pain as the painting mm-hmm. you described however the thoughtfulness and the mediation and the creativity 
is with the tool yeah. as well, which I think just shows the expansion of like where we can go. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe we ended this on a positive note <laughs> with how terrible some of our topics were. <laughs> on that note, thanks so much for not only recording this tonight, but recording this twice. I promised the first one was better, guys. No, I Honestly, I think this one was better. But <laughs> again, you work at Southern Exposure now. People mm-hmm. should check out the website. It's sox.org. That's right. Yep. And thanks, Nick. This was awesome. Thank you, Leah. This is really fun. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Share your thoughts and opinions about this episode's themes on Twitter at and the internet and on the blog at leeandtheinternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash internet.